Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's check in with Adam Coons. He's a portfolio manager at Winthrop Capital Management. Adam, tough start to the week here. What do you just make of today's trading? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I think volatility is going to be the theme for the first quarter. This seems a little bit like deja vu of the first quarter of last year where we saw interest rates start to tick up and, you know, obviously meaningfully, meaningfully ticking up this year. At the same time, that's kind of pushing technology to roll over. And right now we're dealing with the fact that, that the consumer is starting to uh, weaken as well just in, in their behavior and their mentality on what they're doing and what they're spending money on. So volatility is going to be here uh, for the foreseeable future. So what kind of rate increases are you expecting? What kind of curve flattening are you expecting? And what, what does that do to risk assets? Yeah, so, I mean, the curve flattened considerably, uh, 80 basis points just over the last three months or so. So the bond market is absolutely uh, telling you that that there's something going on here. Um, and and to just blame it on COVID and COVID variants, I think, is, is the incorrect way to look at it. I mean, if you looked at retail sales after the Delta variant came out, actually jumped 16%. But if you look at the, at the reading here in December, you saw the retail sales actually rolled over. And then you look at savings rates are now back to pre-COVID levels. And then just most recently, consumer sentiment was back at its lows. So uh, all of those factors are going to lead to a slowing economy, which you're seeing in the flattening of the yield curve. And we think that's going to continue to get worse. Uh, because the Fed's likely not going to take their foot off of the accelerator of of tightening uh, their policy. They seem pretty hell-bent on, uh, on on tightening and raising rates. So likely uh, we see them invert the curve. And so just, you know, from that standpoint, it's just a matter of time when we see uh, some sort of recession hit the market. All right. So given that backdrop, Adam, kind of where are you thinking about, you know, allocating capital uh, in 2022? Yeah, so, I mean, if you think rates are going to go up, you would think fixed income is not the place to be. But uh, we particularly like the long end of the curve. Uh, credit spreads have widened uh, a little bit over the last uh, couple of weeks. So looking at your high-quality 30-year bonds, I think, is a good place to be. Uh, you get some yield pickup, and there is potential for spread tightening. But really, the, the theme is moving up in quality, uh, whether you're in fixed income, like I just mentioned, or even in stocks. And really, when we talk about high-quality stocks, it's, it's a lot of the, the names that, that we've been in and that have worked over the last couple of years. And it's kind of a question of, you know, do you leave with the, the way you came to the dance with? And I think we do. Um, and when you look at companies like Apple and Microsoft, obviously in the news today, and Alphabet, uh, they have business models that can be sustainable through uh, economic swings uh, like we saw through through COVID. Uh, we've seen it time and time again that as, as those companies sell off uh, because investors think either rates are going up and valuations are going to uh, come back down, uh, they sell, but then they come right back into them because at the end of the day, they're cash flow machines uh, that, that effectively have turned themselves into the most defensive stocks in the S&P 500. So we think that's going to continue to work. 
All right, Adam, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Always uh, appreciate getting your perspective. Adam Coons, Portfolio Manager for Winthrop Capital Management. I note here he is a graduate of Indiana University, a Hoosier. Rough start to the trading week here. Inflation, rising interest rates, concerns about the Fed's aggressiveness, all factoring into some unsteady trading, shall we say. Let's bring in a professional does this stuff for a living. Liz Young, head of investment strategy for SoFi. So Liz, when you see a day like today, I'm assuming it gets your attention. Anything more than that? Well, of course it gets our attention. It, it gets everybody's attention, I'm sure. But when you see a day like today, and even a month like we're having in January, I think it's to be expected given the environment that we're entering. And this is an environment that is new to a lot of us. And it's something that I think still has a lot of uncertainty around it, around the path of rate hikes, the speed of quantitative tightening, and the market is trying to understand what can still win in this space. And the, the TINA, I hate to use that acronym, I think it's very overused, but that TINA mentality still very much at play because stocks offer the best reward opportunity. It's still better than FOMO um, and YOLO. Definitely better than you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, so, I, I wonder when you're when you're looking at an, um, a way to hedge against inflation. Is are stocks the best way? Do you think? I mean, depends obviously on what you buy. But um, is there anything else that's better? I think stocks are the best bet right now because we're in a, a place where the Fed is trying to control inflation. Right. So, if you're looking at uh, let's say six months out, the Fed is trying to control inflation on input costs and food and energy. So commodities are going to see a volatile period uh, as the Fed tries to put a lid on a lot of that price pressure that's moving upward. So when you look at stocks, you have to choose your spots, but stocks can still do pretty well in an inflationary environment. I think there's been this belief that the stock market has to fall if there's inflation and that inflation is all bad. And that's not true. It's just that certain pockets of the stock market are not going to do as well as they did uh, in a low inflationary environment. And that namely is tech or even just the NASDAQ broadly, given all of its tech exposure. And you look at things like the broader S&P or the Dow or even small caps, even though I know that the growthy part of small caps are really getting hurt this year already. Uh, there are pockets of the stock market that can do really well. And I would point out Look at the spread between small cap growth and small cap value. Small cap value coming into today was actually positive year to date. Small cap growth down almost 8%. So it matters the style that you're in. It matters the sector allocations that you have in an inflationary environment. Liz, we've seen a big move up in uh, oil prices and the in the energy space here. Again, oil WTI crude up another 1.3% today to just under $85 a barrel, continuing its climb. How do you think about energy stocks here? Is there more room to grow? Yeah, I, I do think there's more room to go in energy, not only in oil prices, but in energy stocks. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily a long-term play, but I think in the short term here, a tactical opportunity in energy, especially as in the next few months, we exit the winter months. And as you see, every time we have a new variant, we don't lock down nearly as hard right across the globe. So travel has really continued through Omicron, and I think any new bouts of a new variant that we may have, travel will continue through that as well, and that's just going to drive more demand for energy. 
And if we get to a point where we are finally reopening and out of this stop-start cycle, there's going to be still quite a bit of demand for energy. And then just think about the second derivative aspects of it. How many people have bought cars over the last year? How many people are dying to drive those cars <laughs> to further destinations and, and dying to get on airplanes and go to further places? So I, I think there's room for energy here. I would only caution investors that you don't want to see a ton of run-up in energy to a point where it gets uh, frothy or hits a spike, because when you get a spike in energy prices, very frequently uh, a huge spike in energy is something that comes before a downdraft in the economy. So we want to keep energy prices in control, um, and I like to say things like, I, I want them to take the stairs, not the elevator up. By the way, another acronym that I hate is USP, but what is the unique selling point or what makes SoFi different um, from other investment businesses? Well, SoFi is an all-in-one app, so it's not just an investment business. We have ways that people can save, we have ways that people can spend, we have a credit card, and then we have the Invest platform that really offers our members a great way to invest and get started if they're new investors. It offers them a lot of different opportunities. Uh, you can buy IPOs on our platform. You can buy fractional shares on our platform. So there's a lot of great options. Crypto, you can buy a lot of crypto on our platform. But what, uh, what, really what's different about SoFi from, say, a Robinhood or a TD Ameritrade or any of these other platforms that, I guess, younger investors are using to invest? Yeah, what's different about it is that we offer all of the solutions in one place. So a lot of the ones that are out there are offering just an investing platform and you still have to do your banking somewhere else and your credit card somewhere else and your lending somewhere else and you can do every single one of them on ours. All right. It's fact. Yeah. I mean, we hear so much about it and yeah. it's, uh, it's gotten so popular that I just wanted to... That's interesting. So you can do everything. You don't need still a traditional bank account. You don't need to apply for a credit card elsewhere and you can, I guess, use those uh, services with each other, which probably... Got a market cap of about $10 billion, although the stock is off about 37% over the prior 12 months after going public, I guess, in October 2020. All right, Liz, great to get a chance to talk to you. Let's talk about the office real estate space. Are people going to be coming back to the offices? Do we need, do companies and corporations need the space, the footprint they had before the pandemic? I'm looking around here and I'm thinking the answer is no. Or do they need more? Uh, yeah, you know, I know an that to be made for yeah. we're all sitting at these cubicles like little uh, rat race rodents, <laughs> you know, I don't he's got four square feet like I would like some room to stretch out. My Pete, dad, by the way, had an office I had with a door on it and you would go in there and he was the only person in there. You could close the door and have complete privacy. I had a table, a sofa, like yeah, a little those room, were the days. managing director at Credit Suisse First Boston. Those were the days, no moss. Jeffrey Langbaum, senior REIT CRE equity analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence joins us. Jeff, I keep seeing in the news, companies in New York City and other urban areas continue to lease space. Who's gonna fill this space? I think the answer is somewhere in between what both of you are saying. Um, people may not be back five days a week like we were before, um, but companies are setting themselves up for a situation where people will be back some amount of time, and they need space for that. Um, and for each individual person, they might actually need more space than they needed previously. Um, 
what that means for the overall size of the footprint still remains to be seen. But the leases that we've that we're seeing getting done in many cases are actually for more space than what they had previously. So in terms of the return to work, we've had a couple false starts here, right, especially on Wall Street. And everything seems to have gotten pushed back. You know, if you're a cool Silicon Valley company, then forever. Um, if you're uh, a conservative Wall Street bank, then like February, fully boosted, please. When are we going to see things get back to normal? Well, we'll see about that forever. I'm still skeptical about that. I, I think that most people are going to need to be in an office um, a portion of the time, whatever that may be. And I think the reason is that the, the companies want them there. The, 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 the people making these leasing decisions want their employees in person at least part of the time. Um, and that's why leases are getting signed. As far as when, I mean, obviously, you know, every time there's going to be another spike of the virus, assuming that remains some amount of the normality going forward, you know, there's going to be pauses and fits and starts. But I think at some point, uh, employers are going to want their employees back and they're setting themselves up for when that's going to be. Um, and, and, you know, we'll see how long it takes for it to get, uh, you know, fully immersed. Jeff, how do you think about just across the country, uh, you know, we, we had this migration of people from urban centers fleeing to whether it's Florida or Texas or wherever Idaho falls. I mean, it, is that a long lasting thing? Are you seeing that in the vacancies and the rents or, or do you still see a future for the urban centers? I still see a future for the urban centers. I think that's where the, the majority of the companies want to at least have their um, core you know, uh, central locations, uh, you know, that's where the talent is. That's where the young people want to be. I think for the most part, you're obviously seeing some corporate relocations. You're seeing some satellite offices opened, you know, throughout the South and Miami's, a, you know, a South, South Florida is a new hotbed, but, but you're not seeing too many companies relocate in full force down there. And I don't think that that happens. Um, I think that you, you, you continue to have demand for places like New York and San Francisco, even if on the margin, there are people migrating away from those cities. Bummer. That's a bummer, dude. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say, look, obviously we're going to keep New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, but let's spread out a little bit like we are in the <laughs> office, you know? Let some of us go to Austin. Let some of us go to, like, Taos, you know? Oh, that would be good. Uh, yeah. You know, well, I, I, think, I think some people are, right, but it's not companies wholesale leaving for those locations. Yeah, no, that's what I thought would be cool. I mean, it would be cool if big companies, huge corporations <laughs> would say, we're leaving San Francisco, you know, and we're going to Myrtle Beach or whatever. Like, you know, we can communicate with everybody in the world easily and electronically. We don't need to be down the street. So, uh, but that's just one of my pipe dreams. I, I, th I, I want population centers just to spread out. I think we're too dense. Really? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Jeff, if we're... How about in New York City? What's just give us the lay of the land in commercial real estate in, in New York City? Well, office leasing uh, in the fourth quarter was the highest that it's been since the fourth quarter of 2019. Um, wow. There's been a steady uptick. Now, we're still below pre-pandemic levels, right? The amount of leases being signed is still below pre-pandemic levels. Uh, and vacancy is elevated. Um, rents are falling because the vacancy is elevated. But what is really happening, I think, is a, um, a migration of tenants to higher quality buildings. The, the, there's going to be a bifurcation. The, the newer 
and more recently renovated buildings with the highest amenities and the best locations, those are going to be the ones that attract tenants and keep occupancy high and rents high. And those that are on the opposite end of the spectrum are really going to suffer uh, and potentially, you know, become obsolete as office buildings and need to find some other uh, other use. And so I think that that will naturally over time reduce the amount of space, um, uh, you know, overall available space and, and get us back to more towards a period uh, a position of equilibrium. All right, Jeff, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Always appreciate getting your thoughts on the real estate space. Jeff Langbaum, he's a senior REIT analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been doing this for decades. Um, but he used and, to do it from the office. Uh, yeah, and I'm uh, working from home today, and uh, we'll see how long that lasts here at Bloomberg LP. I get a sense that we'll be coming back to the office at some point in the not-too-distant future, but we'll see how that plays out. Every corporation seems to be uh, kind of dealing with that as well. So many industries have been disrupted by this pandemic, by the economic disruption. One of them is just broadly defined transportation, but particularly aviation. I mean, who wants to hop in an aircraft with 200 of your you know, potentially infected people? That's been a real issue for the industry. And one of the results is private aircraft travel has actually picked up during the pandemic. We want to get some more color on that. Tal Kanan, CEO of Sky Harbor Group, joins us. Tal, thanks so much for taking the time here. Just briefly, let's start off by just saying, what is Sky Harbor? What do you guys do within the aviation space? Well, thanks for having me. Conceptually, our business is very simple. We, we secure land at airports across the United States. These are mainly airports that support business aviation. We develop campuses of hangars for business aviation and then lease them out long term to corporate or individual tenants and manage them. That's the business. And how, how did you I mean, you, you come from an impressive education and you were a fighter pilot yourself. Um, what's your idea for this business that differentiates it from other businesses in the space? Yeah, so a couple things. First, I think it's, it's a non-controversial statement. There is massive unmet demand for hangar space in business aviation across the United States. And you know, the, j- just to kind of give you a sense, put some numbers on it, uh, the square footage of the U.S. business aviation fleet grew by 27.5 million square feet between 2010 and 2020. Now, what's happened in the last two years is just a, a, a very, very dramatic acceleration of that trend. You know, what, what we have now is a situation where the vast majority, you know, probably close to 90 percent of those who can afford private air travel in the United States. I'm talking about both corporations and individuals. Uh, close to 90 percent have not availed themselves of private aviation. And what we're seeing right now, I think your introduction was very appropriate, appropriate on that. We're seeing right now is is just a you know a, a whole scale migration from commercial aviation into private among those. By, can, by the way, why pay. haven't they? I mean, is it just not prudent to spend your money that way, Tal? It seems like uh, the jump from business class to your own jet is quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, for it, it is expensive. Uh, I think culturally, a lot of you know a lot of people, a lot of corporations haven't liked that look uh, for a long time. But it, increasingly, that is a, a, a responsible thing to do, especially for a business you know where that involves a lot of travel uh, and sending people on kind of extended road trips today using commercial travel uh, is disruptive. And you know, one of the things you'll see it's it's not just it's it's not just the risk of contracting uh, COVID nineteen on a commercial flight. It's the airline's reaction 
to COVID, which has largely been to cancel or diminish a lot of routes. So getting from secondary city to secondary city in the United States today is much more difficult than it was two years ago. And I, I think that's mm. probably going to be the case for a while. Tal, how do you think business travel is going to return? We've seen generally leisure travel come back depending upon where we are with, with the various uh, variants. But business travel is something different. How do you think about it? Well, so I, I, a couple things. First, in, in much of the country, it already has returned and then some. You know, if we look at kind of our facility in Miami, uh, we look at the fuel volumes, uh, the you know, fuel consumption by business aviation, uh, we're hitting record years. If you see delivery of new aircraft, you know, 2021 was a record year in delivery of new business aircraft. 2022 is going to beat it by about 12%. So you know, the, the, the market's already speaking on this. You know, the, the, this, this business aviation fleet in the United States will continue to expand by literally millions of square feet per year, uh, I think, for the foreseeable future. And I think one of the things that's worth looking at historically, the move from commercial to business aviation uh, has tended to be secular. You know, one, once a, a company decides it's going to start flying privately, it tends not to go back to commercial aviation. So we, we think much you of can't go back. Right now, like, no way. It's tough to go back. <laughs> I will tell you, I, 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 a good friend of mine is a CEO, was a CEO of a major car maker. And after he retired, his family made him take one trip on a commercial flight. <laughs> and he said, man, I never want to do that again. No, awful, no. awful experience. <laughs> um, and it is bad. Yeah. You know, they sit you right on top of each other. They don't care about the risk of COVID. They will, they, they will put you less than uh, a safe social distance mm -hmm. apart Low in the factor. plane and on the bus. And Tal, I want to ask about Miami as a choice. I, I believe you're from Miami, but I know you studied at Georgetown and then in the Northeast, you've advised uh, government task forces in Israel where, where you served uh, in the military. So you, you, you've been around. Why go back to your roots? Why choose Miami as a place to headquarter your company? Well, so it's, it's, it's only one of our facilities. So oh, I see. Right now, yeah, we've got six facilities today. The company's actually headquartered in New York. Uh, I, I will say it is one of my favorites in that, you know, the business growth and business aviation growth in South Florida has really been off the charts, uh, even compared to what we're seeing around the country. Yeah, I wanted to ask, you know, uh, what you thought of the city. We've been talking a lot about diversification away from New York, but I guess you, I guess what your uh, experience proves is you still have to be in New York. It's still an incredibly important hub. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think certainly from a business aviation perspective, you could cut New York in half, and it would still be, you know, it'd still be kind of a top five market in the country for us. And I, I don't think it's cutting in half. Hey. Tell you know, Matt's out there in the car market trying to buy a car, and his supply chains are killing him. He can't find anything weightless. If I want to go out there and, and get an aircraft, a private jet, can I get one? Am I going to pay through the nose? Can I get any discounts? What's the market like? Uh, yeah, the short answer is you cannot. You're yeah, absolutely right. It's a very relevant question. Uh, if you look at the various websites you know, where aircraft are, are traded, you know, they went from a year ago advertising aircraft to now kind of uh, aircraft wanted. You see a, you know, like a Phenom 300 wanted. Um, so, yes, there's been also a lot of move, movement in the secondary market uh, for used business aircraft, which is pro-U.S. Right? Europe is a net seller of used business jets. The United States is a net buyer of business jets right now. And prices have gone up considerably in, in, in the secondary market as well. By the way, th those supply chain issues are also, you know, I think the, the aircraft OEMs feel that as well. 
uh, but because the numbers are much smaller, you know, like 700 aircraft delivered in 2021 is a record year, nothing like the automotive industry, I think the impact of the supply chain issues is a little bit uh, lighter. All right, so it sounds like I should hold on to my United miles then. Uh, Tal, you know, Greg, so Greg Jarrett proposes Trade-A-Plane. Trade-A-Plane? It's a website that I peruse quite often. <laughs> but you're not finding a G650 there. This is more like... Um, Piper Cup? Exactly. Okay. More right. like a place for a Piper Cup. Tal, it's great to have... By the way. Sorry? Yeah. Even those. You'll, you'll see the, price, the, the, the supply oh, yeah. strategy even on the light side. Yeah, you know, the prices are... are <laughs> soaring um to to use a bad pun tal i'd love to have you back on the program i think really interesting stuff and um it's a business i think we all would like to see grow a little bit i think we all want a little piece of that a little I'd piece of that to. private i would love to plane travel uh talking there with uh tal Kane. he's the ceo of sky harbor group thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.